Thank you for tuning in to Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederata.com. Let's start tonight with an update on the price of insulin. Now, I noted recently that I didn't feel like it was really a decision meant to help people, but actually as a PR coup that coincided with a required drop from the Inflation Reduction Act for Medicare Part D. But it turns out there's an even better example of you're not mad at science, you're mad at capitalism involved in this story. Ars Technica reports that the true cause looks like it's actually a clause in the American Rescue Plan that eliminates a cap on rebates that drug companies are required to pay to Medicaid. Apparently, if the cap was to be lifted with insulin at the current list prices, the pharma companies might have had to pay Medicaid programs more than the price of their insulin every time Medicaid had to cover a prescription. This would have likely have added up to millions of dollars in payments to Medicaid. And to make an even finer point to it, the insulin prices are set to drop on the very day that the rebate cap is set to be lifted. So yeah, this is pretty naked, ridiculously out there, just pure capitalism at its most just blatantly evil and not giving two shakes for the people that are actually affected by it. And basically, once again, corporations are never interested in your actual well-being, even those that are literally in the business of producing life-saving interventions. And we saw that recently with the Moderna CEO, who is trying to say that a 400% price hike in the uh, price for the COVID-19 vaccine is perfectly reasonable, even though the government gave them a billion dollars overall. I mean, the companies, they didn't, Moderna probably didn't get an entire billion, but they gave them tons of money and they're saying, oh, that only barely helped us. Excuse you? (laughs) Um, It is really just blatant. And so, yeah. Well, in less mercenary news, a new collaboration between the dating app Grindr and the government is distributing 1 million free at-home HIV tests to people in the U.S., hopefully over the next five years. The program is called Together Take Me Home. And it is partnered with Grindr to get the word out to some of the most vulnerable populations, obviously. Now, there's a link on the app to the website for the project, which mails the test to anyone in the U.S. over 17. The test uses a mouth swab and resolves in 20 minutes. People enrolled in the program can order up to two kits 
every 90 days. The tests are rated to have a 92% accuracy when detecting the virus and a 99.98% negative result when a person is negative for HIV. So basically, it has an extraordinarily low false positive um, result. And so that's really good because you do not want to get a false positive on a test like this. Um, and 99.98 is pretty much the best you can get. You're never going to get 100 on anything. Now, the website also hosts information on sexual health services and prevention and has trained staff available for guidance. If you need help accessing uh, pre-exposure prophylaxis or PrEP, you can email support at togethertakemehome.org. By giving people an easy option to know their HIV status, Together Take Me Home can help people, particularly those disproportionately affected by HIV, take this first important step in preventing and treating HIV. Dr. Travis Sanchez, a professor at Emory University's Rollins School of Public Health and the program's executive director, said in a statement. So that's a good thing. Um, definitely think that that is a uh, better story <laughs> to end on for our public health segment this uh, today. And so, yeah, moving on. <laughs> Recently, there was a bit of a sensational idea that an ancient object found at the Roman site of Vindolanda near Hadrian's Wall in the United Kingdom might have been an ancient dildo. Now, I say sensational because we are a rather prudish folk. <laughs> uh, the Romans were much less so. So, um, yeah. And so, to be fair, there were other suggestions for the 2,000-year-old object, including a pestle for grinding food or other ingredients, or maybe a phallus for a statue that would be rubbed for good luck, because again, the Romans were less prudish than us. Uh, and in fact, it's not the worst suggestion, because we do find a lot of phallus-shaped objects associated with Roman uh, settlements. Many are small and winged. Uh, those would probably have been worn as pendants or placed on a home altar because the Romans associated uh, penises with warding off evil. Others were carved or painted for various reasons, including erotic signage and graffiti. Um, so at Vindolandia, actually, they found a carving that had a uh, crude phallus and a uh, a little note about someone <laughs> that was definitely uh, some rude graffiti. And in fact, there are 13 carvings at Vindolanda altogether. And that's it. That's more than at any other site along Hadrian's Wall. But there was a new idea that has come onto the scene that the object is actually a humble drop spindle. The suggestion actually comes from an avid spinner who wrote in to question the suggested use. Lindsay Duncan Pitt of Telford, Shropshire, wrote a letter to the Guardian newspaper 
suggesting that the object looks much like a dilgan, a type of drop spindle with a tapered body and a notch at the pointed end. She noted that it was found among other crafting materials, dozens of shoes and bits of waist leather and worked and worked uh, bone or uh, antler, sorry, which suggests the more mundane usage. She writes, the tip looks a little glance-like, but it also, but it is also like the notch at the pointed end of the dilgan, used to secure the spun fiber with a half hitch. The spindle is then rotated to add twist to the drafted fibers, and the spun fiber is wound around the shaft. The base of the artifact is wider than the tapering shaft. That would have helped stop the fiber slipping off. Some dilgans have a notch at the base, but not all. Now, I do want to point out that while that sounds very reasonable, the phallus suggestion actually does have some weight behind it. The Greek historian Herodotus told a story about two women discussing how one had attained a scarlet leather dildo from the local shoemaker. It could be that the object was a mold for the shoemaker to create such objects. Having found the object near those shoes and such may actually put it more firmly in this camp rather than the drop spindle. But all of this is to say that, uh, you know, it would be lovely to know exactly which answer was correct. But alas, not everything has an easy answer. This is definitely one of those examples of a place where we just can't know for certain because we're so far removed from this civilization. Um, you know, it's another version of, well, not quite because we have some good guesses about what it might be, but, um, you know, there is there are objects that we just don't know anything about. Um, and so it's interesting to try and piece together these things, but to also acknowledge that we can't always know for certain. Now, the area around Vindolanda has also yielded many other surprises. The oxygen-deprived deposits have allowed for impressive preservation of other wooden items, including writing tablets and over 100 boxwood combs. Notably among the wooden tablets is a letter written around 100 CE by the wife of a commander named Claudia Severa. It was an invitation to Sulpicia Lepidina for a birthday party, and it represents one of the earliest known writing samples from a woman writing in Latin. So that's pretty cool. The site was first discovered in 1586, with serious archaeology beginning in the 1930s and continuing to the present. And so basically, there's been an archaeological presence there for many decades, and they continue to find new objects. So this is a pretty impressive um, site. And so the object was actually discovered in 1992 and was basically tossed into the archives at the Vindolanda Museum until Rob Sands, an archaeologist at the University College London, found it marked as a darning tool. 
And so, yeah, very interesting. And maybe someday we'll find another one in a context that makes it clearer and then we'll have a good, have a good answer. Okay. Let's move on and revisit one of our space friends. Oh, Muamua. A new paper suggests that the cigar-shaped object's odd acceleration might have had a less sensational explanation than some other people have suggested. So the new paper from Nature suggests that the confusing trajectory of the object may have simply been outgassing of hydrogen as the icy body neared and was warmed by the sun. Oumuamua, again, uh, if you don't remember, that is Hawaiian for messenger from afar arriving first, sailed through the solar system back in 2017 and was the first observed interstellar object. And it was actually first observed in Hawaii, which is uh, why I think that it got the cool Hawaiian name. Um, obviously, I am very much in favor of uh, sort of spreading the love when it comes to naming conventions. I think that, you know, the Greeks and Romans have had uh, a pretty good time of it. And <laughs> maybe it's time to let some other people in on the uh, fun. And I think that, um, you know, astronomers in the U.S. have been doing a pretty good job of that uh, as of late. So I commend that. And also you get to learn what really interesting words are in other languages, uh, which I think is great fun. And so uh, back in the day, some people decided that it was an alien object, uh, but obviously scientists have been trying to explain it via more mundane natural uh, laws. And so the hydrogen outgassing theory was originally rejected as imaging didn't show any telltale signs of gas and dust being released. But Jennifer Bergner, an astrochemist at the University of California, Berkeley, approached her colleague, Daryl Seligman, now a postdoc at Cornell University, with the idea that the object might have this simple explanation. Now, Seligman had already previously suggested that the object might be a solid hydrogen, quote-unquote, iceberg, which would have been able to outgas and match the acceleration observed. A comet traveling through the interstellar medium basically is getting cooked by cosmic radiation, forming hydrogen as a result, said Bergner. Our thought was, if this was happening, you could actually trap it in the body so that when it entered the solar system and it was warmed up, it would outgas that hydrogen. Could that quantitatively produce the force that you need to explain the non-gravitational acceleration? Bergner found experimental research from previous decades that suggested this could be it. They described how large amounts of molecular hydrogen are produced when ice is hit by high-energy rays, like cosmic rays. The hydrogen could then be trapped within pockets in the ice. When the object is then warmed up by going past the sun, for instance, the structure of the ice changes and the pockets collapse, releasing the trapped gas. The scientists found that beneath Oumuamua's surface, 
there is a sufficient amount of ice, or was a sufficient amount of ice, to produce such an outgassing mechanism. Now, Harvard astronomer Avi Loeb, uh, who proposed in 2018 that the object was actually a solar sail, uh, possibly of alien origins, is not convinced. The authors of the new paper claim that it was a water ice comet, even though we did not see the comet cometary tail. Loeb told the New York Times, this is like saying an elephant is a zebra without stripes. But given his alternative explanation, I'll take that elephant. And Bergner and Seligman have an answer to this criticism. For a comet several kilometers across, the outgassing would be from a really thin shell relative to the bulk of the object. So both compositionally and in terms of any acceleration, you wouldn't necessarily expect that to be a detectable effect, said Bergner. But because Oumuamua was so small, we think that it actually produced sufficient force to power this acceleration. And they basically said that the uh, outgassing would have mostly produced a sort of envelope around Oumuamua that you wouldn't even have been able to detect with uh, our sensing equipment. Other astronomers are intrigued, but cautious, of course. I'm not willing to say it solves things. The smoking gun there would be to have detected hydrogen spectroscopically. Karen Meach of the University of Hawaii, who is not affiliated with the study, told the Times. But it is very plausible. And if another object is discovered that looks like Oumuamua, then all these models and explanations provide a lot of guidance for the observations. I'm amazed at how much work has gone into explaining this one object. A lot of creativity has gone into getting the best understanding possible. Hopefully, another object like Oumuamua will be detected as that object has left our solar system and is no longer observable. Um, and so, yeah, I'm very hopeful that we will see more of these kinds of interstellar objects and be able to get a better understanding. Because again, this is something that was brand new to us. And uh, we're finding a lot of brand new things recently. Uh, the JW um, Space Telescope uh, has been doing some really interesting work and has been uh, really challenging some of our ideas about the early universe. And so that's actually really exciting because, of course, it is always exciting to be proven wrong in science. I know that's so hard for a lot of people to understand, but that's what scientists live for. Everyone is always talking about how, oh, you know, people in, um, you know, scientists don't like to um, be, um, don't like to be proven wrong, but it's not true at all. Scientists love being proven wrong. And so, yeah, it is totally exciting because then you might find some newer and more complete idea of how the world works. It is just, it's the whole point. <laughs> um, sorry. I, I you know, ha, 
am often reading about people who are very dubious about science because, you know, they keep changing their mind. And it's like, they're not changing their mind. They're getting closer to what is potentially the true answer. And I know it's a really hard distinction and I'm probably preaching to the converted, obviously, but um, it is always amazing to me that people don't see that as a feature, but as a bug. <laughs> Um, so anyways, uh, let's talk a little bit more about our, uh, friend Avi Loeb, uh, <laughs> maybe not so much a friend. Uh, I consider myself pretty open-minded, uh, but he definitely pushes the envelope. So his latest project, which is, you know, why, again, I'm not really going to be on his side in this idea that it's something alien rather than natural. Uh, his latest project is in conjunction with, with Sean M. Kirkpatrick, director of the Pentagon's All Domain Anomaly Resolution Office, or ARROW, established by the DOD to detect and study objects of interest. And uh, ha- he's put out a draft report called Physical Constraints on Unidentified Aerial Phenomena. Now, it's not an official Pentagon document, nor has it been peer-reviewed, but it does have, uh, you know, connections to the DOD. And so a few months prior to the flyby of Oumuamua, a small interstellar meteor around three feet wide hit the Earth. It got Loeb thinking about, well, aliens. He began... Quote, to consider the possibility that an artificial interstellar object could potentially be a parent craft that releases many small probes during its close passage to Earth, an operational construct not too dissimilar from NASA missions, Loeb told Live Science in an email. These dandelion seeds could be separated from the parent craft by the tidal gravitational forces of the sun or by a maneuvering capability. Okay, so in the uh, craft, in the draft, sorry, the duo looked at, well, UAPs, or Unidentified Anomalous Phenomena, which is the new uh, title for uh, UFOs by the government. And so they wanted to look at them in a way uh, that work that was confined by known physics. And so they suggested that dandelion seed probes could reach Earth for expo- exploration without being detected by being too small to reflect enough sunlight for survey telescopes to detect. Equipped with a large surface-to-mass ratio of a parachute, technological dandelion seeds could slow down in the Earth's atmosphere to avoid burn-up and then pursue their objectives wherever they land, uh, the duo wrote. They suggest that a rocky planet with water would be as tantalizing to another species as it is to us, which is a fair point. They note that the seed ship would not need to be inhabited. It probably wouldn't even be able to communicate with the probes. And the alien civilization who created the craft might even be extinct. And so that's a big issue with alien contact, is that the universe is a lot older than the Milky Way. The vastness of space suggests that the probe could have been sent out before the universe 
sorry, sorry, before the solar system was even formed, not the universe. It resembles checking our mailbox for any packages that may have accumulated over time there, even if the senders are not alive anymore, Loeb said. Now, many of his colleagues are probably going to respond to this paper much in the same way they responded to his Oumuamua paper, with much skepticism and even perhaps a bit of scorn. But the military has renewed its interest in the phenomena, so he'll have someone to listen to him. Um, and yeah, um, I've, I've stated my position before on this, which is that I believe that there's very little evidence to suggest in the grand scheme of things that we are the only sentient beings that have ever lived in the universe. That just seems ridiculous to me. There's an entire universe. Why would we be the only ones? Um, but that does not lead me then to the idea that anyone is coming here to visit us. Um, I think that that is a much bigger logical leap than I am willing to take on. And while I do think that there's a lot of phenomena that we still have yet to understand, I think it's all understandable by natural or artificial, but artificial based on earth explanations. And I'm willing to be proven wrong, just like I'm willing to be proven wrong by somebody finding Bigfoot. I would think it would be really neat. Um, to be able to find signs that there is other intelligent life in the universe. That'd be great. Absolutely. But I need real proof. And so far, I have not seen any real proof. Okay. So again, let's uh, finish up this segment with a bit of a lighter note. Um, and so there is a new citizen science project opportunity. Uh, a new set of data from the ESA's Gaia mission has dropped with 10.5 million variable sources uh, across the entire sky that have been identified using machine learning methods. And so I've talked about this kind of project before, several times probably, but I just like to always remind people they can get in on it. Uh, so basically they use an algorithm and then they need humans. The next step is for citizen scientists to take a second look at those variable sources and classify their brightness changes, colors, and other variables, including identifying incorrect classifications because... It turns out that the good old human eye is still much better at figuring these things out than an algorithm. Uh, you know, we're doing better in algorithms, obviously, and we could have a whole conversation about uh, chatbots at some point, but um, not right now. <laughs> so if you're interested in it, you can find the Gaia Vari project on Universe. And Zooniverse, excuse me, Zooniverse, Z-O-O. Gaia is deepening our understanding of the universe as we know it, and both professional and amateur astronomers have been amazed with the results analyzed so far. Now we need help from the wider amateur astronomy community to better understand how stars change throughout the years, said Pedro Garcia Lario, community support scientist at Gaia Science Operations Center. 
And so data from Gaia has already shown us that our galaxy merged with another early in its existence around 10 billion years ago. We've also learned more about the Andromeda galaxy, which will collide with the Milky Way, but again, in billions of years from now. And so, yeah, definitely a lot of fun. And so again, that's Zooniverse, and then you would just look for Gaia Vari, V-A-R-I. And so uh, definitely something to do in your downtime if you're interested. All right. It is time to take a break and do some show promos and PSAs. And when we come back, we're going to talk about Keanu Reeves, at least obliquely. So uh, do stay tuned. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Outbreaks of whooping cough or pertussis are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine called Tdap during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov slash pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres, and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in the CD or tape player, each week presenting shows which can at times be organized and orderly and at other times perhaps be not as much so yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's subculture music program, featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. The Forbes Library staff would like to remind you of the incredible resource that you have in your local public library. We have tens of thousands of books for you to check out, music CDs, movies, newspapers from around the region, the state, and the country. We have a wide variety of magazines and free computer and internet access every day. We also have our incredible reference services there to help you answer particularly vexing problems. All of this is free, locally available at 20 West Street in Northampton, so come by and check us out in person or at www.forbeslibrary.org or call 587-1011 for more information. In our polarizing political climate, it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. 
to provide incisive factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So tune in for Civil Politics, Friday evenings at 7 here on Valley Free Radio or anytime at civilpoliticsradio.com. Okay, we are back. And as promised, we're going to talk about Keanu Reeves, at least obliquely, as noted. (laughs) So uh, scientists have named new fungus-killing compounds after the renowned actor. Yes, renowned. Fight me. (laughs) The new compounds have been named for Reeves due to their similarity in their killing prowess comparable to Reeves's ability to defeat villains in many of his movies. The compounds have been dubbed canomyosins and create holes in the surface of fungal pathogens, effectively bleeding them to death. Sebastian Goetz at the Leibniz Institute for Natural Product Research and Infection Biology in Germany notes, We were just basically blown away by the high activity. Uh, And he told this to the Washington Post. That's why we basically said, yeah, it's like an assassin, a hitman or something, killing a couple of different fungi very effectively. And so canomyosins are created by soil and water dwelling bacteria in the genus Pseudomonas which use the compounds to attack amoebas that feed on them. And so the researchers suspected that they might be able to aim these killer compounds at fungi that shared some characteristics with amoebas. In their study, published in the Journal of the American Chemical Society, lead author Goetz and his team describe canomyosin's ability to combat a common plant pest that causes a gray mold rot. Botrytis cinerea affects more than 200 types of fruits and vegetables, including strawberries and grapes, according to a statement. So very important cash crops. They result They suggest that this could become an affordable and environmentally friendly alternative to fungus-killing chemicals currently used in agriculture, which would be extremely exciting because, um, yeah, anything that can be a newer and less harsh input to agriculture is definitely warranted. This study documents another exciting means by which microbes have evolved to compete with and fight other organisms. Matt Nelson, a researcher from Chicago's Field Museum who was not involved in the study, uh, told CNN, Over time, many pathogenic organisms, including fungi, have evolved resistance to the chemicals we use to battle them. Consequently, we need to find a new way to outsmart or one-up them. The team found that cyanomyosins can also target Candida albicans, a species of fungus that infects humans and causes yeast infections. Now, I will note that this is not the Candida that is currently 
uh, on the rise. And so unfortunately, cannamycins aren't necessarily going to be able to target that particular problem. Um, but they have not been found to be highly toxic against human cells. So um, they could be used to create new an- antifungal drugs and maybe they could eventually be used against um, other forms of candida that are more alarming. Uh, candida albicans isn't, you know, nothing, but it's not the one that's actually killing people right now. But we have an antibiotic crisis, Goats tells the Post. There are a lot of bacteria at the moment, especially in hospitals, who are largely resistant against different antibiotics. And the same is also true for fungi. Not many new antibiotics at the moment are being developed. And the same also goes for antifungals. Now, I am going to put out there that, uh, again, I think that the reason for this is capitalism, not science. Uh, antibiotics are not generally considered a big moneymaker. And so the big pharmaceutical companies don't see them as an important development target because, again, they are more interested in making uh, money. And so they want to be able to focus on drugs that are going to be uh, cost effective for them, things that they can make very cheaply and sell for extraordinarily uh, price gouging uh, prices. And so, yeah. But during a Reddit Ask Me Anything session, uh, Reeves commented on the naming event. They should have called it John Wick, he wrote, but that's pretty cool and surreal for me. But thanks, science people. Good luck and thank you for helping us. And once again, uh, I would like to say that I can't think of a nicer, more worthy person in Hollywood to name something after. Um, Keanu Reeves is definitely one of my personal faves in case you couldn't have told by now. Um, so yes. Okay. Let us now turn to a story about how hard it is sometimes to tell exactly what some ancient fossils represent. In this case, a new perspective on an old fossil revealed that it was a different species altogether. Now, this often happens um, when you find a species that's kind of been, uh, you know, put in a dustbin, some, well, put in a, on a shelf, I should say, not in a dustbin, put on a shelf and, you know, somebody labeled it in the 1920s and then somebody comes back nowadays, looks at it and is like, oh, well, that's not what that is because we have so much more, uh, you know, knowledge and have so many more specimens. But this one is pretty well known. So it's kind of a funny story. And so a newly described sea anemone fossil was originally thought, and for a long time, to be a sort of weird but uh, serviceable jellyfish fossil. (laughs) So basically, uh, somebody finally looked at it and turned it what was considered upside down, looked at it again, and realized that it was a sea anemone and not a jellyfish. The fossil was first described in 1971 
and is actually famous both in professional and amateur paleontology circles for being a rather easy fossil to find, despite lacking a skeleton. And so the new paper in the journal Papers in Paleontology has re-examined these fossils and found that, once again, they are not what they had thought to be. The Mason Creek fossil beds in Illinois formed some 309 million years ago during the Carboniferous period. During this period, the area was an estuary where silty fresh water would have flowed into the ocean that at the time covered much of North America. So for a long time, there was a giant inland ocean uh, or inland sea covering North America, which was connected right to the ocean. Because of the silty nature of the area, animals and plants were often covered soon after dying and eventually became very well-preserved fossils. And these fossils included not the standard, not just the standard animal skeletons, but also the remains of soft-bodied animals like jellyfish. These fossils are better preserved than Twinkies after the apocalypse, study co-author James Hagedorn, an expert on unusual fossil preservation at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science, said in a statement. In part, that's because many of them burrowed into the seafloor as they were being buried by a stormy avalanche of mud. Now, the most common fossil found was what was considered a rather bizarre, but still, again, able to be detected jellyfish called Asexala, Asexala asheria, but usually called the blobs by fossil hunters collecting them as souvenirs. That was until 2016 when Roy Plotnick, a professor emeritus of invertebrate paleobiology and paleontology at the University of Illinois, Chicago, started to look more closely. I've always looked at these jellyfish fossils and I've thought, that doesn't look right to me. Plotnick, lead author of the new study, told Live Science. He enlisted the help of Hagedorn and Graham Young, curator of geology and paleontology at the Manitoba Museum in Canada, to re-examine the thousands of fossil specimens held at the Field Museum in Chicago, as well as in other collections, both public and private. The two are experts in jellyfish, so Plotnick figured that they'd have the best chance of figuring out what the heck was going on. The fossils showed a cap with a membranous skirt, unlike modern jellyfish, which don't have skirts. They rather have the cap and then tentacles. We've all, you can definitely imagine a uh, jellyfish in your head, I'm sure. And so it turns out that they found that the cap was not a cap at all. Rather, it looked a whole lot like the muscular foot that many sea anemones use to burrow into the seafloor. And it turned out that the muscular skirt was actually the barrel-shaped body with a hole at the top for filter feeding. In addition, small snails buried with the fossils were not the ancestors of jellyfish parasites, but rather scavengers chomping on E. Escheret's corpses. This meant that the specimen had to be moved out of the order Semistomanime, which contains jellyfish, and into the order Actinaria, which contains sea anemones. 
it's quite the move for what is such a well-known fossil. And again, this is one of those great examples of finding something and, you know, new evidence shows that it's something else. Again, feature, not a bug. <laughs> um, it's, it's very hard to um, really impress upon people sometime that this is not that scientists are, you know, not able to figure things out. It's that scientists sometimes need to take a new perspective on something. It's the reason why diversity is such an important thing and why, um, you know, we really need to have people with different perspectives in science. And that's something that obviously science has struggled with for a long time. Uh, it still has a problem with being predominated by uh, rather uh, elderly uh, white men. Um, and so I think this is, you know, not necessarily a specific example here, but, you know, it's the kind of thing where like if somebody else had looked at it who had a different perspective, who didn't have preconceived knowledge of what it was supposed to be, then there might have been a different result that somebody might have been able to say, yeah, I don't think that's a jellyfish. Like it doesn't look like any jellyfishes today. And while that's not, you know, a deal breaker, it still seems like maybe we should take another uh, shot at examining it. And, you know, um, I think it's really interesting that this was one that was very well known um, because, you know, often my favorite stories are when you find something that's been uh, gathering dust on a shelf in a back room of a museum and then you find it's something magical and amazing that like has just been waiting to be discovered. But in this case, everybody knew about them and everybody just kind of assumed, oh, yeah, it's a jellyfish. It's a weird jellyfish, but a jellyfish. Um, and so, uh, another great sort of example of the, uh, amazingness of science where we really can continue to change our minds, um, because that is such an important part of science. Okay. So let us swing back to one of our favorite subjects around here. Uh, but we are going to stick with uh, creatures of the ocean. And so a new study shows that even uh, cnidarians like anemones and coral, which only have a nerve net and not a developed brain, can still form associative memories. Now, the most famous example of associative memories is of Pavlov's dog experiment. We all know it. Ring a bell and the dog begins to salivate because it has been taught to associate the bell ringing noise with being given food. Through repetition, an animal learns to associate two previously unrelated objects, events, or actions. This makes a lot of sense evolutionarily. It's a great shortcut being able to remember that snakes are danger noodles, uh, it's the scientific term, uh, or that when it rains, a certain kind of prey comes out, those sorts of things. But the question was, does it require a brain? 
This is where members of the phylum Cnidaria, which includes hydra, corals, anemones, and jellyfish, all creatures with radial symmetry, come in. These animals have a diffuse web of neurons called a nerve net rather than any kind of centralized uh, brain. This allows them to coordinate movements and other important functions. They are also able to respond to stimuli and have structures that resemble eyes, at least many of them do. This suggests that despite the fact that they don't have a brain, there are still a lot of functions that are already present even with a nerve net. So this is interesting for the development of uh, brain function. We're constantly trying to figure out, you know, how far back in time did these things develop? Because it's really interesting to think, oh, well, we thought it was only in this group, but then it turns out that if we look at this more, um, you know, basal group that has a less developed version, oh, they can do it too. And that's really interesting to um, really discover the ways in which brains have developed overall. And so the paper by Gail Bottom Amiot and Simon Sprechter of the Department of Biology at the Institute of Zoology at the University of Freiburg, as well as Pedro Martinez of the Department of Genetics at the University of Barcelona, shows that these seemingly simple creatures can indeed form associative memories. Now, I do have to note that they did use negative reinforcement. So if that bothers you, you might want to, you know, not listen to the end of this. Um, and I apologize. I wish, I so wish that scientific research could always be, if not good to the animal subject, at least neutral. I feel heartfelt sadness for animal experiments that involve what might rightly be called torture and wish that we could find a way to stop it. Now, I think that we're making good strides in creating computer modeling and hope that that will continue to advance and so that we can really move away from experimentation on live animals. And there are many, many scientists and researchers who share that hope. And I think that this is something that unfortunately has been a long-term problem, that a lot of science involves doing things that are, again, tantamount to torture. Um, and even though it's for a good reason, that doesn't make it any less torture. Um, and so... This is something that I think is obviously a huge discussion. And I think that, again, most researchers, almost all researchers would prefer not to have to do testing on animals that involves hurting them in any way. But we can't rightly test on humans and some tests have to have negative consequences in order to test, you know, whether we can create interventions for those things um, in some respect. And so even though this is a really touchy subject, I don't think that this is a particularly terrible version. Um, I would never 
uh, explain to you something that was really awful um, because I don't want to uh, engage with that. And I, um, you know, don't want to support that kind of thing, even if it is in some uh, respect considered necessary. And I think we could obviously argue about whether these things are necessary too. Uh, this is a deep philosophical uh, discussion that obviously I am not equipped to uh, properly pontificate on uh, or express the proper uh, position of the scientific community. I am not equipped for that in any way, shape, or form. Please don't uh, <laughs> misunderstand me. Um, and so I think that we should really just continue to try and uh, help with research that actually allows us not to have to do these sorts of things. So really diving deep into computer modeling and that sort of thing um, that allows us to not have to actually harm animals in our experimentation. All that being said, let's talk about the experiment. Uh, the researchers uh, went with a species of anemone called Nematostella vectensis. And so these guys sense light, but they don't actually have the light, the eye-like structures found in many other cnidarians. So that's really interesting too. Uh, so the researchers combined exposure to light with an electric shock. Before training, shock on its own would cause the animal to contract their bodies and pull in their tentacles. Exposure to light on its own caused about 20% of animals to also contract. But after an hour-long training where the light exposure and shock were combined, things changed. The percentage of animals that responded to light alone dropped around 10%. The shock alone caused roughly the same frequency of response, about 10%. To achieve the contraction, the researchers had to combine the shock and light, which caused around 70% of the animals to contract. Now, interestingly, this is lower than the initial condition, but some fatigue is expected as they'd endured an hour of shock training by this time. Separating light exposure from shock by a minute triggered contractions around 30% of the time. Now, obviously, as you might have realized by now, this is different from the effects found by Pavlov. Rather than associating one stimulus with another, causing the effect even when the second stimulus is not present, here the anemones began to only associate the response to the combined stimuli. So that's really interesting. And it suggests a form of coordination amongst the neurons in the nerve net that allows the animal to retain memory of that association. And so this suggests that the function, again, is very old and may not require a physical structure dedicated to the task. While many cnidarians have sections of the nerve net with greater concentrations of neurons, no association with function has previously been observed. And so basically, 
in a brain, you have all of these different physical structures that are connected to different kinds of um, functions. So you have the uh, area where your brain processes uh, input from your eyes, from your ears, that processes memory, that, uh, you know, your frontal lobe is involved in, um, you know, basically higher order thinking and uh, impulse control and things like that. But in an anemone, there's no physical structures like that. There's just sort of a loose association of neurons. And so it's really interesting to be able to know that these neurons are able to do these kinds of things without any of those constructed structures. Um, and so the next step uh, would be interesting to see if the two stimuli could be unassociated as well. So hopefully we'll see that in the future and then we'll know a little bit more about how brain function evolved, which is super cool. All right, that is all the time we have for tonight. Uh, thank you for joining me on Evidence-Based Radio. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.